under the command of a centurion. And it was the prerogative of the soldiers to take the clothes of the victim. And since every Jew wore five pieces of clothing, sandals, a turban, a belt, an inner tunic, and an outer robe, it's somewhat easy to figure out what happened. First, each soldier chose one of the less expensive articles. They kind of went around and each took something. The inner tunic was without seam, we're told, woven in one piece from top to bottom. It could not be divided. And realizing that it'd be foolish to divide the, uh, the tunic, they then cast lots or gambled for it. And unwittingly, they're fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, which was part of our responsive reading this morning. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Much of our responsive readings in the, this, for the last month and the next month all deal with prophecy of the crucifixion. We don't choose the responsive readings normally at random. Normally they have something to do with the passage later on. And you should look for that. But these are cold-blooded men. I mean, it's bad enough to take a dead man's clothes, but they're gambling over them while he in his last dying moments is looking on. And I think the four Roman soldiers were an unwitting picture of a world without God, a concise picture of the world's neglect of Christ's atoning death. These Roman soldiers give us a a potent reminder that the world is indeed a cold place. I don't know how many of you remember the the books by Robert Ringer, who is a prolific author of a number of bestsellers in the 1980s. He wrote, Getting What You Want, uh, Winning Through Intimidation, Looking Out for Number One, and my personal favorite, How You Can Find Happiness During the Collapse of Western Civilization. All in all, a fairly good synopsis of the 1980s. Anyways, Robert Ringer describes life as a giant poker game. Everyone's after your chips. He says there's only three kinds of people in life. Those who are after your chips but won't let you know it. Those who are after your chips and will let you know it. And the most dangerous, those who are after your chips and don't even know it themselves. Says that's it. Those are the only three kinds of people, and they're all after your chips. It's a cold world. Just ask the Roman soldiers. So they're there. They're at the foot of the cross, and they're gambling for Jesus' clothes. Now, Scripture tells us actually very little about the clothes that Jesus wore. We know what his cousin John the Baptist wore. We know what the religious leaders wore. But the clothing of Christ is fairly nondescript, neither so humble as to touch hearts nor so glamorous as to turn heads. And our reference here in verse 23 and 24 to Jesus' garments is very noteworthy. It says, The tunic was seamless, 
woven in one piece from top to bottom. It must have been one of Jesus' finest possessions. Jewish tradition called for a mother to make such a robe and present it to her son as a departure gift when he left home. Had Mary done this for Jesus? We don't know. We're not told. But can you imagine how she must have felt to watch the soldiers gamble for it? We do know the tunic was without seam, woven top to bottom. Why is this significant? It's just one of those eyewitness details John throws in so we know that he was there. Is it just to show us how prophecy is fulfilled? Is there something else? Scripture often describes our behavior as the clothes we wear. The Apostle Peter urges us, 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. King David speaks of evil people who clothe themselves. In Psalm 109, he says, He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. Garments can symbolize character. And like his garment, Jesus' character was seamless, coordinated, unified. He was like his robe, uninterrupted perfection, woven in one piece from top to bottom. The character of Jesus was a seamless fabric woven from heaven to earth, from God's thoughts to Jesus' actions, from God's tears to Jesus' compassion, from God's word to Jesus' response. All one piece, all a picture of the character of Christ. But when Jesus was nailed to the cross, they took off his clothes. They took off his robe of seamless perfection and assumed a different wardrobe, a wardrobe of indignity. There's the indignity of nakedness. All the pictures show him with a loincloth, but when they crucified people, they took everything. He would have been crucified naked, stripped before his own mother and his family and his loved ones, shamed before his family. There's the indignity of failure. Because for a few pain-filled hours, the religious leaders are the victors. Jesus appears to be the loser. And he's shamed before his accusers. And worst of all, he wears the indignity of sin. Again, 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The clothing of Christ on the cross was sin. Your sin and my sin. And Jesus was not only shamed before people, he was shamed before heaven. Since he bore the sin of the murderer and the adulterer, he felt the shame of the murderer and the adulterer. Though he never lied, he bore the disgrace of the liar. And though he never cheated, he felt the embarrassment of a cheater. And since he bore all of our sins, he felt all of our collective shame. It's no wonder 
the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, uh, verse 13, speaks of the reproach that he endured. While on the cross, Jesus felt the indignity and disgrace of a criminal. And no, he wasn't guilty. And no, he hadn't committed any sin. And no, he didn't deserve to be sentenced. But you and I were, we had, and we did. And Jesus offers you and me a robe of seamless purity. And he dons my patchwork coat of pride and greed and selfishness. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He changed places with us. He wore our sin so we could wear his righteousness. And though we come to the cross dressed in sin, we leave the cross, Isaiah 61, clothed with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Indeed, we leave dressed in Christ himself. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The New English Bible translates that. You have all put on Christ as a garment. However, in a very telling way, our text contains a contrast that you shouldn't miss. There's this group of uncaring, taking soldiers. And then there's another group itself, a a microcosm of those under Christ's care. These people were receiving from the giver. Receiving from the giver, starting at verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. There are four others besides the four Roman soldiers standing at the foot of the cross. Verse 25 identifies them as his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four soldiers, four women. The contrast is unavoidable. I believe this is the purposeful work of our sovereign God so that Jesus' loving heart could be clearly seen in his care for his own. Can you, can anyone imagine the pain of these four women? Those of us who have lost loved ones way too early in life can understand much more than the rest of us. I mean, picture the scene. There's a cross. Jesus is on it. There's soldiers. They're gambling. They're joking. And then there's people watching. And there's some women there. There's a guy there in the midst of the women, probably leaning on that guy for support, is Mary standing there before her son. We got a lot of moms in here. 
How do you picture that? That is pain like which most of us will never experience as difficult as things can get in our lives. Mary is undergoing just an incredible, difficult, challenging hardship to be standing at the cross and looking at her son on the cross. You know, most moms and their kids are little. You know, this is interesting. A little boy falls down, skins his knee. He doesn't run to dad. You know. Runs to mom. Like always. It's like genetic or something. You know, because he knows dad's going to say, get up, you're fine. You know, mom's actually going to comfort him and hug him, put a Band-Aid on or something like that. Mary is standing there before her son. Put yourself in her place. When she was uh, a young mom and Jesus was just an infant, she and Joseph took him to the temple to present him to the Lord. And to their delight and surprise, there was the aged Simeon, a righteous and devout man, the scripture tells us overcome by the Holy Spirit, and he takes the baby Jesus in his arms, and he sings of the blessing that he would bring, Luke 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there on the cross was the baby Mary had nursed, the boy she had held, the man who brought her nothing but joy. And now a sword is piercing her heart. Mary was there when he was born into this world, and she's there when he left it. She was there when he entered the world and into her arms, and she is there as he leaves this world, returning him to the arms of his father. The second lady there, we're told, is Mary's sister. Parallel passages in Mark and Matthew tell us the second woman, his mother's sister, was Salome, Zebedee's wife, the mother of James and John. She had been severely rebuked uh, by Christ for her ambition for her sons, but apparently she'd seen love in that rebuke. And now as Mary's sister, she's experiencing not only personal agony, but that unique agony that only a sister can feel for another sister. We know nothing of Mary, the wife of Clopas, the third woman. Some feel, uh, some commentators think she is one of the couple that was traveling on the road to Emmaus after Christ's resurrection in Luke 24 but we don't know for sure. We do, however, know a lot about Mary Magdalene. Mark 16 and Luke 8 tell us that seven devils had been cast out of her. Jesus described her as one who had sinned much and as one who had loved much. 
She was one who had come to Jesus in a Pharisee's house while the Savior reclined at dinner. There's two stories about that. One of them was Mary. She watered his feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, anointed them with perfume. What misery she must be experiencing now at the foot of the cross. All four of these women were really, really hurting. And when Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, whom we believe to be the Apostle John, standing nearby, he says to his mother, verse 26, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. The Greek indicates that Christ is very much in control, almost matter of fact, as he speaks these tender instructions. His words reveal the depth of his love and his care for his own. Remember, he's on the cross. He's in limitless pain. Hour after hour, he desperately strains for another breath, straining tendons like violin strings, experiencing joint-rending cramps and intermittent uh, asphyxiation. He's lingering at the fringes of death, and he knows that in the next hour, darkness would cover Calvary. And he, in cosmic battle, would bear the world's sin alone in the darkness. And even with all of that crushing him, he thought of his own. Even as he died, they were on his heart. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who thought so perfectly of his own in the time of extreme suffering, bears that same heart, that same depth of love, in his present exaltation at the right hand of God the Father. He still cares intimately and completely for his people. We have a Savior who loves us so much that when we're hurting, he will come to us without fail. And Jesus' instructions from the cross reveal just how perfect his love and his care are. The phrase in verse 26 describing John as standing nearby means that John was literally standing beside or next to Mary. Evidently, he's the only disciple at the cross. And he stood alongside Mary, supporting her. And as John and Mary gaze up in utter misery at the mutilated form of their greatest love, Christ summons all of his strength and gasps, John, this is your mother. Mary, this is your son just before his knees buckled, taking him back into that shadow land of semi-suffocation. And in obedience, John takes Mary as his surrogate mother. One extra-biblical account, is not in the Bible, but an early account, says that John owned a home in Jerusalem and Mary stayed there 11 years. And only after her death did John go out and preach the gospel to the Gentile world. Another report says that Mary died in the city of Ephesus while sharing in the Apostle John's ministry. We don't really know for sure what happened to Mary, but we can be sure that John, being the Apostle of love, fulfilled this sacred trust that was laid upon him by the Lord. You think about the relationship they must have had. We know John lived very old. Mary must have been there uh, with him for some amount of time. We don't know how long. But what an encouragement they must have been to one another. Both loved Jesus with all their hearts. 
Both had poetic spirits. Both were tender. John was young. Mary was not. And they're now mother and son. Think of the benefits she brought to John's life and later ministry, the, the hours of conversation, the opportunity for questions. Imagine being able to sit down at the dinner table. What was he like as a boy? There's only one person who can answer that question. Mary was and is the most blessed of all women. We tend to shy away from her in Protestant circles because we think it's been taken to an extreme, but sometimes we go too far. Elizabeth's song still applies in Luke 1. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary brings sunlight to John's life. The Lord was perfectly caring for each of them. Now for John, that blessing comes in the form of additional responsibility. After all, John still had his own mother to care for. And delightful as she most certainly was, Mary was undoubtedly at times a burden. She was blessed, but she was a sinner as well. And my guess is there were probably times that John wished she would take her blessing somewhere else. Nevertheless, she's wonderful for John and he for her, and they were God's care for one another. And Christ's care for us may come in the form of additional responsibility. We'd like to think the more we love God, the less he'll ask of us and the lighter our burdens will be. But that's not necessarily the case. If we love Jesus, he'll make use of our love. And Jesus' care for John came in the form of a burden, but that burden was a blessing. And not all the pressures we bear come because we love. Some come simply because of sin and our own stupidity. But unique responsibilities are placed on those who possess great love for the Lord. And some of our burdens are, in fact, blessings. The foundation of Jesus' love and care is seen in the words that Jesus uses. As he makes Mary John's responsibility, he calls Mary his mother. And yet when he speaks directly to Mary, he addresses her as woman. Some have supposed that he was trying to protect Mary from the possible trouble that could come her way if she was recognized as her mother. Others say Christ didn't call her mother because he didn't want to make her pain any worse. But truth be told, I think the reason runs far deeper. As Jesus approached the work of redemption, a new relationship was beginning to develop with Mary. If you remember, at the very beginning of his ministry... He's with Mary at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, John 2. And she says, Jesus, do something. Like only a Jewish mom can, you know. And what does Jesus say? And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And now on the cross, when emotion is likely to be in evidence, it's a very matter-of-fact manner that Jesus commends his mother to the care of St. John. And their special earthly relationship as mother and son has now yielded to a higher, holier relationship as he became her savior. This is the foundation of his love and care for her and his love and care for us. Mary and those with her at the foot of the cross found their comfort in his atoning work for them. 
the ensuing days, they would uh, experience the continual comfort of his having borne their sins, a growing sense of grace and freedom and increasing awareness to heaven. This is the ground of our comfort as well. In this fallen world, as messy as it gets, Christ still offers loving care and provision for his own. His love for us is so deep that he experienced untold agony for us and meets our deepest needs. This is the care of one who hears us, sees us, knows us, and loves us anyway. But not everyone feels that way about Christ. It may take a statue to teach us that. Do you still have the clicker? Put up the slide. Christo Redentor. It's 90 feet tall. 1,320 tons of reinforced Brazilian tile. Positioned on a mountain a mile and a half above sea level. It's a famous statue that overlooks the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. Cristo Redentor. Christ the Redeemer. No tourist goes to Rio without snaking up uh, Corcovado Mountain to see this looming monument. The head alone is nine feet tall. The span from fingertip to fingertip is 63 feet. But if you could look at this statue very closely, you couldn't help but notice the blind eyes. Now, all statues have blind eyes. But here it's as if the sculptor of this statue intended that the eyes would be blind. There are no pupils to suggest vision. There's no circles to suggest sight. What kind of redeemer is this? Blind, eyes fixated on the horizon, refusing to see the mass of people at its feet. And then on the outside of the cloak, there's a heart, like a Valentine's heart, a simple heart, a stone heart. Again, what kind of redeemer is this? A heart made of stone, held together not with passion and love, but by mortar and concrete. What kind of redeemer is this? Blind eyes and a stone heart. And I've learned the answer to that question. What kind of redeemer is this? Exactly the kind of redeemer that most people want. Exactly the kind of redeemer that most people want. You can turn it off. Now, most people wouldn't admit to wanting a blind redeemer with a stone heart. But take a closer look at this. For a lot of people, Jesus is nothing more than a good luck charm. A rabbit's foot redeemer. Pocket-sized, handy, Easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You know, you can frame him, dangle him from your rear view mirror or stick him on your dashboard. His specialty is getting you out of a jam. Need a parking place? Rub the Redeemer. Need help on a quiz? Pull out the rabbit's foot. No need for a relationship, no need for him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. For many, he's an Aladdin's lamp redeemer. New job, new car, new spouse, your wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently 
re-enters the lamp when you don't want him around. For others, he's a Monty Hall redeemer. Monty Hall was the host of Let's Make a Deal. All right, Jesus, let's make a deal. For 52 Sundays a year, I'll put on a costume. Jacket, good pants, nice blouse. I'll endure any sermon you throw at me. In exchange, you give me the grace behind pearly gate number three. The rabbit's foot redeemer, the Aladdin's lamp redeemer, the Monty Hall redeemer, they all have blind eyes and stone hearts. And they all have no demands, no challenges, no sacrifices, no commitments, and no relationship. So close and yet so far away. There's only one problem. None of them are the Redeemer I read about here in John 19. The Redeemer I read about here has eyes that see and eyes that cry over what he sees. The Redeemer I read about here has a heart that feels and his heart has felt so much it's broken. We need to be careful we don't go through life close to the cross but far away from Christ. We need to be careful we don't go through life knowing all about the wood and the nails, the torn garments and the gambling soldiers and all about the cross, but nothing about the blood of Jesus. How close are you to the cross? How far are you from Christ? Think about that. You need to pray. Why don't you take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Dear Lord, sometimes we take you for granted. We expect you to be there for our convenience. To solve some of those problems that we can't control. Sometimes we are way more like the four soldiers at the foot of the cross than the four women who wept and mourned and grieved over what happened to you. It's been a long time since we've mourned and wept and grieved over what happened to you. Father, we pray that we would not be among those who are close to the cross, but far away from Christ. We ask that your spirit would work in our hearts, that you might draw us to the cross, that we might see Jesus and not just his clothes, that we might understand who he is and what he has done for us. I ask that you would do this for each one of us here. The power of your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.